0: Roscoe, ask me how I am. How are you, Gary? I'm as starry-eyed and gravely discontented but like a nightingale without a song to sing. Oh, why should I have spring fever when, when it, it isn't even spring? spring. <laughs> Very good. <Why> are we... <laughs> well, I thought we'd kick off this episode <laughs> okay. with that little ditty from State Fair, since it's only a month or so before the first day of spring, and we've been having almost balmy weather.
1: Yes, this week here I think in it was Chicago.
0: 65 <laughs> here yesterday. Welcome to Booth One. Our adventures in the art of lively conversation, where we explore the cultural landscape and seek out unique and thrilling Booth One experiences. I'm your host Gary Zabinsky, and Roscoe, you are my own personal breath of spring. How have you been?
1: I've been uh, frisky.
0: I have to start <laughs> the episode. I'm sorry on a rather sad note today. Mm. I attended a funeral last week. My erstwhile girlfriend and possibly future, the fourth Mrs. Zabinsky passed. Carly Fiorina dropped out of the race.
1: <laughs> <laughs> as
0: anticipated, as we've been talking about this, but she's finally, she's finally gone. She's finally gone. Uh, it was a beautiful affair. No one came. Just like her rallies. <laughs> and uh, she was buried in an old HP copier. <laughs> I should, should be back up for
1: a moment and explain the context of this.
0: <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think it's worth it. <laughs> I, think, I think our, our frequent <laughs> listeners will understand. Well, we have two very, very special guests in our studio today. One is going to be very familiar to our listeners. Sylvia Hernandez de Stasi is back with us. She was here on episode number 12, and uh, Sylvia, I have to say, episode 12 is probably our most downloaded and listened to episode, so you have quite a lot to live up to. Let me remind our listeners, uh, Sylvia is a former professional circus performer and founder and artistic director of the Actors Gymnasium right here in Evanston, Illinois. Sitting next to her is our good friend, David Catlin. David Catlin is the co-founder of the Looking Glass Theater here in Chicago and was the artistic director of Looking Glass from 2003 to 2010. Your directing credits include Looking Glass Alice, Icarus, Black Diamond, Metamorphosis, Her Name Was Danger, The Idiot, for which you received a Jeff Award, and the most recent Moby Dick, which we talked about some episodes ago, which you adapted and staged along with Sylvia's uh, assistants and the actors' gymnasium. A fantastic production, fantastic. I- I- are, you, are you remounting that at the arena stage uh, in Washington soon? We are. Uh,
2: that's going to happen in uh, the end of November. Uh, we're going to open the, the day after Thanksgiving, and then it will close Christmas Eve. And we're hoping that there might be a couple other stops along the way, but we're just working out the details for that.
0: Great. That I, that will be very, very exciting. Are you bringing some of the cast from Chicago to do the show?
2: Hopefully. Uh, almost everybody is wants to do it. Uh, actually, everybody wants to do it. There are a couple members of the cast who have families here with young kids, and it's... The idea of traveling is a little tricky for them.
0: So, yeah. currently David and Sylvia are appearing in the Actors Gymnasium's Winter Circus production of a show that we saw just recently last week. We went to a benefit sort of opening night, I guess. I guess it was yeah, opening night. It was called Marnie and Phil, a circus love letter, written and directed by Chris Matthews of the House Theater. Yes. In fact, you play in various incarnations of age Marnie yes. and Phil, That's circus right. performers. <laughs> Let me backtrack just a little bit and ask you this. You've known each other for many, many years. When did you first meet? What were the circumstances of that, and how did that go?
3: (laughs) How did that go? How did it go, yeah. Um, We met during their production of The Master Margarita, which was in 19...
2: Uh, Well, the production was 94, the the winter of 94, but we did workshops starting in the fall of 1993, we wanted to do these workshops where, in the book, uh, Bulgakov's really most excellent book, there are all these instances of magic and flying, characters uh, flying through the air over Moscow. And so we wanted to be able to recreate that. So we, we hired Flying by Foy to work with us on flying rigs to bring in um, some of the, some of these harnesses. We hired a personal trainer to get us physically ready. We hired a guy named this really excellent magician named Eugene Berger to teach us some magic. And then we were looking for a circus person who could teach us elements of circus. And we had a good friend um, named Jeff Jenkins, who's one of the founders of the Midnight Circus. And he said, um, you should bring in Sylvia Hernandez. She had recently left the circus, so I remember we, we set up a meeting at D'Agostino's on Addison. Southport and Addison, yeah. D-
0: D'Agostino's, the pizza
3: place? Yeah, 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 yeah. Which I actually I was working there at the time.
2: Really? <laughs> it's
3: waiting tables. I
2: don't remember there was any discount or free. <laughs> no. uh, soda I wasn't pop or working anything. that day, okay. but okay.
3: I was working there.
2: But we headed off and, and we got her to to agree to do these workshops with us. We had this old rehearsal space, kind of a lo- giant loft above a, a granite cutter. They they sold countertops, but they also cut it on the premises and we would get this granite dust in there. But it was this beautiful old kind of wood floor with wo- warped wood and high ceilings with really filthy and broken windows. And it was kind of this real, real sort of bohemian uh, place. And we set up all these this kind of circus apparatus. We had a crash pad. Um, my
3: my brother sent up a tita board from right. Florida. That's he right. shipped it up, and we used that.
2: And and I just remember um, we would you'd walk in, and she had us in all these stations flying through the air, and and uh, there was a moment where Joey Slotnick, who's kind of a natural clown slash comedian. Was, not acrobat. <laughs> not, not a natural <laughs> acrobat. But he was up on the web, uh, the Spanish web, which is like this kind of the gym rope that you climb, but it's covered in this sleeve of webbing to make it a little bit more easy to use. And he was so excited that he was up in this kind of knot of, of webbing. And he was so excited that he called across the room, Silvia, Silvia, look at me, Sylvia. And in that moment, the knot that he was in started to kind of... Not fail, but he just started coming down at a, at a very slow but precarious speed and then hit the crash pad.
0: Um, yeah, that was a Beautiful fun. moment. Yeah.
3: Yes. Sylvia, look at me!
0: <laughs> Sylvia, what did you think of this group when you first got involved with them?
3: Well, it was, it was interesting because I had left the circus and I came to Chicago and I was wondering what I was going to do with myself. And I met this, for lack of a better word, Well, I guess it is not lack of a better word. It is a word, troop, theater troupe that seemed really reminiscent of a circus troupe in my, you know, my feeling. It was like, oh, this is very much like the life I left. You know, everybody's really close. They trust each other. And, you know, I'm asking them to do things which is out of their comfort zone. But because of this bond that they have, they really just gravitated towards the stuff that I was trying to get them to do everybody has a special like oh you're really good at this so you should maybe stick with this and you and and everybody finds their place just like at the actor's gym you know everybody finds their place where they feel the most comfortable and then they excel at that but I just like the camaraderie and it just made me feel a little bit at home even though I was new and I was not an insider of the group they welcomed me and it it was like oh I could get used to this because this is yeah. kind of comfortable, and it just felt like home.
0: Now, Marnie and Phil its the story of an aspiring aerialist and an ambitious circus clown. <laughs> um, we watched the story play out uh, from young trainees to performance stardom to retirement into old age. So except for the old age part, what portion of this story is autobiographically about either of you? This would have been, obviously, Chris Matthews' script, but he borrowed this from someplace. He got inspiration from somewhere.
3: Yeah, um, a, a couple of years ago, um, I was working with an actor, a young woman, named Lauren Hurt, who was the original Alice in Looking Glass Alice. And I met her when she was 18. We bonded. She, Everybody was always like, she's like a younger you. She's like a younger you. So a couple of years ago, her and I uh, did this aerial routine that was like me looking at my younger self and me passing on the torch to her. So it was this aerial routine we had only done it once. Um, Rick uh, Sims, uh, who's with Looking Glass as well, did a, uh, we recorded a voiceover of me telling stories about my childhood and watching me, like looking back in time and looking at Lauren. And I talked to Chris a little bit about this and I was like, I kind of like this idea of looking at my younger self, passing on the torch to the new generation. And he kind of ran with it. I also, we were doing a show, and it was a kid's show, and somebody's grandmother came in to the show, and she came in late, and it took her two full circus acts to sit down (laughs) (laughs) because she was very, very elderly.
0: Did she have a walker, or was she just, I see. And, And a whole
3: bunch of bags, like a lot of bags, and she was rustling, and this act was going on, and I was like, play that character. I really want to play that character. And he had this thing about writing letters. He's like, it's just sad that people don't write letters anymore. And I remembered when I was in the circus, that's how I kept in touch with, you know, at first my best friends, we'd get stacks of letters. I would write a response to a letter and then I would get another letter and I'm like, oh, do I send this or do I throw this out and write a response to this letter? And you could never keep up. Just kind of like this story goes
1: I have a stupid technical question. When you're living on a circus train, what is your mailing address?
3: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why you get a big stack of letters, because they send them to the buildings that you are performing in. So when I was on Ringling, they just send you know a big box of mail to the Chicago Stadium, and then we have a mailman that sorts it out. And
0: David, you play a clown in the show. Uh, mostly you play him as as his older version, mm-hmm. um, either 80 or 60 or yeah, 50 yeah. or something yeah. like that. Anything autobiographical there for you? I think in terms of what Chris may have
2: uh, channeled, I uh, recently injured my shoulder, actually before the run started. I was a, a million years ago, I was a high school wrestler, and so I, I, I'm strong and I, I'm often good at lifting people up in the air and being that person on the bottom, in the circus they call him the bottom guy, um, I, I'm the base of the the pyramids, and I actually love doing that kind of thing. So I I said I don't know if you want bottom guy who's really only has one good arm right now.
3: And I said, you are probably better with one arm, stronger than one arm with one arm than most people are with two. Oh. So I need you to do this show with your one arm.
2: And I did, and it's, <laughs> it's been fun, and I've been been able to figure it out, and that that's part of the. For me, the sort of beautiful thing, and I think Chris found ways to tap into that. This notion that as you get older, the things that you love to do—and circus is a metaphor here for all of us, hopefully—in this case, it's, some, the, it's circus that I love to do, but it could be it could be running or golf or or tennis or or something. And you just either you just abandon it or you figure out a way to adapt. To your new body and, and as, as it gets older, or your old body as it, as it changes, and at you know the sort of I guess not frustrating, but the thing I had to work through is I, intellectually, I understood, oh, I, I can't do that, but then I would see these these younger performers attempting something. And I would say, oh, I could do that. I know how to do that. I want to do that. I, I, can I do... I can't do that right now. But I could go in and sort of coach it. And, and at times, I've gone in and done it, but I've had somebody function as my left arm. So I'll, I'll, I'll say, come here and be my left arm while I do this. And so we've been able to adapt. And, and that I think Chris has tapped into that.
3: Sure. There's a line in the show, which I should know, because it's said to me every night, or every show, um, that says, are you going to stop moving just because...
0: Well, he talks about three—the three, the three of the
3: enemies of enemies
0: of the circus performer, which are gravity, time, and inertia—and we get to see through characterization and the acts that are presented in front of us, and the fact that Sylvia, you're played by three different actresses, but three different performers. Um, you, as well, are mm-hmm. have two other performers who play you in younger versions, and we get to see the progression of. Gravity and time, and eventually, sort of inertia. Um, though both of you certainly are not near the inertia stage. That is, that was a fantastic journey to take us on um, in in this piece. I, I thought, yeah. I, Roscoe, did you were you fascinated by that?
1: I, I was, and I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into something. You have, you know, as part of your training, you have kids that can ride unicycles, uh, do all kinds of gymnastics and acrobatics, juggle. What is it called when big pieces of fabric fall from the stage and you climb silks. up the silks, yes. the silks? Could I be taught to do the silks? Of course. Anyone is teachable. Yeah. Why? How, <laughs> how strong
0: are those silks? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. When, all, when all of the teen ensemble comes on stage in unicycles, it inexplicably made me teary-eyed.
3: That's what I hear. Why, why, is, of,
1: what, what is, what, why would that happen?
3: You know, we've never had... Tears shed over any of our unicycle routines except for this show, and there is just something beautiful about the movement and the voiceover. Well, and it's the, a moving music, moment. Yeah. yeah, I think the I music. think
2: part of it too. I, I had another um, a good friend who had a similar experience, and she said that she said, you know, normally unicycle, I, it's not my favorite. I I like it, and I can appreciate how difficult it is. But it, when I saw the first unicycle come out, I thought. Oh, this is you know this is taking place at a circus school that there might have an obligatory. Here's what we this amazing thing we can do that doesn't tie into the story. But then she said, as it builds with as Sylvia is describing this voiceover, the story is um, swelling to a certain point. There's this really great music underneath it, and then the unicycle act starts to swirl and 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 build itself where there are just an impossible swirling amount of unicycles on this s- sort of smallest area. And I think it's just that swirl of them all that holding these letters, these missives, to people that you hopefully have grown to care about. Who and they keep shouting out
0: place names places in the world where these letters are coming from. Yeah. She's writing to you, you writing yeah. back to yeah. her. And it starts out, as you say, fairly small. A letter arrives on a unicycle, yeah. she hands it off and off. Then two unicycles, then four, then suddenly, how many are there? Twenty? Some.
3: I think it's. Uh, I think it's twenty.
0: As you say, but on it's, a fairly it's a
3: small stage. In a fairly
0: defined space, we were sitting in the front row, and, yeah. and and when when they came around the very front edge of the stage, I, I was fearful. I'm wiping the tears from yeah. my eyes. Yeah. I was yeah. fearful. I was hoping I would catch somebody if they did fall. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. Speaking of the staging moments. I have to ask you, Silvia, in the beginning of the show, you and the other two Marnies do a routine on an apparatus that's sort of a big hollow ball made of steel bars, and it's got all kinds of hexagonal (laughs) angles to it. What is that called?
3: We call it the Saturn. It was built for Little Prince at Looking Glass. And And when we got it for Little Prince, I was like, I love this. And there's actually a video. The man, Lee Broswell, who designed and built it, has a video of me just hugging it. I'm like, I just want to use this again and <laughs> again. I'm so happy. And we used it for little Prince, and it made me really happy to have the businessman on this Saturn apparatus. I just kept fantasizing about bringing it to the gym and using it for other in other ways. And we wanted to do a pendulum to a pendulum act to represent the time passing, but that it wasn't working out exactly like we had hoped, so we just used it in a different way, and I, it's just one of my favorite toys.
0: What performers have had the most impact on you, both of you, in terms of, oh, artistry, technique, and, and, and just sheer showmanship in your careers? I guess I'm asking, you know, who, who did you find inspiring
3: I often talk to my students about this. I, over my span of performing and watching performers, people that have inspired me, I have taken a little piece of. They say imitation is the biggest form of flattery. Sincerest form Form of flattery. flattery, sure. But to take one person and just try to be that person is not what I have done over my millions of years of performing. I've taken little pieces of people that I've admired And incorporated them into my performance. And that's what I tell my students. I say, if you want to be a performer, you have to go see performances. You have to see what you like, and you have to see what you don't like. And you have to use the stuff that you like, make it your own, and see what you don't like and make sure you don't do it. Because if you don't like it, other people aren't gonna like it either.
1: But you also grew up in the performing arts, so it wasn't like you know, me sitting at home watching...
3: TV. Um, oh,
1: ...Shecky Green on TV <laughs> and saying, gee, I hope I'm that funny when I grow up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, well you, you are. You turned out as funny as Shecky <laughs> oh, Green. Oh, okay, that's great. Roscoe.
1: Oh, my God, that's a pathetic reference that aged me. What about you, David?
2: I worked with a small theater company in Pittsburgh called the Pittsburgh Metropolitan Theater Company, which had this you know sort of grand-sounding name, but they were just a very small, small company. They were affiliated with Carnegie Mellon. Their artistic director, David Ball, was on the faculty uh, then. And and I remember I got to play the boy in there Waiting for Godot, and it was the beautiful production of it. And I remember the boy is on for, I think, two or three minutes at the end of the first act and the second act. And and so I would sit and listen as a as a, I think I was 12 or 13 at the time, and I would listen to this play that I did not understand and nor would I claim to perfectly understand now. But I would hear it over and over again. And I would hear these actors, their sort of commitment to being artists was just so extraordinary. And I I remember a time after one of the shows where um, the stage manager uh, had everybody over to her little crappy apartment, backyard for a for a barbecue. And it was on this like little tiny grill. And they had a little cooler full of beer and some pop that I could have. And and there was this sun setting. And so the light was kind of golden. And they didn't even have grass. It was like a couple little splotches of crab grass. And, and they were cooking these little flimsy burgers. And there was this little girl toddler waddling about in the dust and, and um, with no shirt on. And it was just this even for like a thirteen i think it was thirteen uh year old boy I thought that is amazing there's some some I want that uh in my life to be with a group of people who are so committed to what they are doing and and then to be able to find these the simplest of pleasures that kind of little sense of community so I think for me that was tremendously inspiring and then and then uh, also, I got to go to Northwestern and, and watch Frank Galati and take classes with him, and the way he just sort of cracked my mind open about what theater could be. And then right as we were deciding to start Looking Glass, I remember going to see Palabalos Dance Company and what they could do physically. I remember being pulled to the edge of my seat and thinking, oh my gosh, this why, why does theater not pull me to the edge of the seat? I, I want I wanna tell stories that do that in a way that does that. And Cirque du Soleil was making its initial tent tours, I think it was their second second run. Again, I was I was breathless and, and my jaw was, you know, on the floor and and I thought, theater should do this. If you could take this kind of and then right as we started, there were some contemporaries, uh, new crime productions did this the new criminals, John Cusack and Jeremy Piven and uh, Betsy Ingram produced with them, <laughs> but but they they had this commitment to taking something old, Commedia dell'arte, and then infusing it with the energy of this band, Fishbone, and it was just so exciting and had style to it. So, like Sylvia, anything I saw, I would try to steal from. And I, just the one other thing I would say is that. Part part of coming out of Northwestern is that it's very much, it's a story-centric program. So it's not, it's not creating actors who are the best actors they can be. They're, the, the sort of mantras: what actor do I need to, need to become to play Hamlet or Horatio? So the story is the thing that's guiding the work, so that there's this bigger, this thing that's bigger than the individual. And the fact that it's a liberal arts institution it sort of demanded this broader study, this broader taking in and not just narrowing in on a single way of doing things, and so that breadth made us want to incorporate circus and uh, elements of film, and then adding the fact that you've got this city, Chicago, that is you know the the birthplace of ensemble work between Steppenwolf and the compass players and that sort of really collaborative world, um, all of that has been really important to me.
1: I love that explanation. I'm not going to go to Looking Glass Theater and see Death of a Salesman, probably.
0: Unless yeah. unless Willie is a trapeze artist. Yeah. Unless you Willie, know,
1: Willie I, is a trapeze artist.
0: I will say, when, when and we... And
1: Biff st- on the teeterboards.
2: Yeah. <laughs> when we started the company, I remember vehemently swearing, strident, stridently swearing... To the, to the gods, to Zeus and whoever would listen, we will never do Oklahoma and we will never do our town. What it really comes down to is what are the stories that we feel need to be told and what happened with our town was Jessica Thebus and Anna Shapiro came and said that they wanted to do that with us. It's about for them, it was very much about community and they were fascinated with the looking glass community, the fact that we all sort of vacation together and hang out together. The thing that Sylvia was getting at earlier when she was noting something about this troupe, they wanted to to use that for the show. And and I think uh, because when I uh, first read Our Town as a narrow-minded 20-year-old, I didn't get it. I didn't, it didn't, I think I thought I was immortal at the time. And when we read the play, when Anna and, and Jessica Thiebus, uh said, you got to read the play, so we read it out loud, and by the third act, we were just crushed. We were just completely, completely weeping, and, and part of it is many of us have kids. I think there's 26, 27 looking-glass kids, so on that level, we could understand the, the loss of an Emily in a really profound way, and then we also were at that age where we were starting to lose our parents and and so that the profundity of that so we we were sort of known for for working with elements of circus but we also the the real thing that we look at the question we ask ourselves at Looking Glass is why does this story need to be told sometimes that answer there's usually a two-part answer one that there is some bigger reason for the community, for society, but then there's also a very personal reason of why it needs to be told. To me, that's with Phil and Marnie. There is that idea of how we grow old with grace and still find a way to be passionate and ert (laughs) or whatever the opposite of inert is, to to continue to have ursha even as gravity starts to pull us down, as time begins to slip away. The the idea of, of keep moving forward. So, so it feels like, on a deeply personal level, that that's important. I had a conversation with Rick Sims, who Sylvia was talking about earlier, the sound designer, and he, he made me look back at the last 10 years and um, looked at the number of shows that we've done. And he said, You know, we probably only have another decade of making shows. And that took my breath away the idea that, that there's now, I can maybe count on my 10 fingers. The number of shows that I have yet to make, um, because I, I don't necessarily do a lot of I don't. There are people who are very prolific and are able to crank out beautiful work uh, th- three or four times a year, and for me it takes personally it takes two to three years to to for some of the things like Moby Dick and Looking Glass Alice. So so that that idea that the artistic life is finite, suddenly was just overwhelming. And so this particular story where, where you see that, that there is potentially an end, but this, uh, this notion of to keep going, to keep going, to keep being ert. Um,
0: well, something so that will keep the ert from ert too much. <laughs> yes. Um, I have to congratulate both of you. Uh, this week, uh, the MacArthur Foundation announced some recipients of awards, monetary awards, right here in Chicago, kind of out of the blue. These are not the Genius Awards. And congratulations, Looking Glasses, the re- recipient but, of a million-dollar yeah. reward. That's fantastic. That should, that should keep the shows coming for quite some time. A, a million dollars is a, just an
2: extraordinary, transformational gift. We're a, we're a mid-sized company, and we are blessed to be... We're the second-largest Budgetary-wise, um, ensemble in the United States, um, second to Steppenwolf, we're the the biggest in the United States that does primarily new work, new work generated by the ensemble. It's a wonderful place to be, but it's also tough because we want to produce at a high level with designers that that are that are our own company members, and and the level that we produce at. Demands that it's safe in a way because we've got human dynamic loads yeah, on the furniture. we're you, you, throwing your, things your around. Your
0: productions are always very complex. Yeah. um Not cheap to do, yeah. uh, especially to do safely and to do beautifully. So, so um, a, a so million it, dollars will go a long yeah. way towards helping that. And
2: it makes it it makes it in a way risk because it's new work. You don't know. You don't know. You know with Moby Dick. It's a known title, which is, can be really helpful. We do a lot of adaptations. That known title is helpful. But you don't know if anybody really wants to go see that book that they didn't read, right? Huh? They don't. <laughs> maybe they do want to see it because then they don't have to read it, maybe, or maybe they'll get interested in reading it. But you just don't know, even if there's known title, if it's going to work. Theater is a, is a tricky thing. And, and so that's a show that, Ended up doing well, but it was, it's a risk. And, and what that million dollars does is it allows us to, to put a chunk of money in the bank and not feel like we're risking the livelihood of all of the people who, who work at Looking Glass.
0: There are many other uh, theater companies in Chicago received awards. One of our favorite companies, Timeline mm-hmm. Theater, Yeah. They received $625,000, which is fairly significant, I would think, in terms yeah. of their overall And, and you budget.
1: have to point out, this is a theater that uh, performs in the gymnasium of, of the United Church, Church of Christ in Lakeview. Feel- uh,
0: the Hypocrites, a beautiful company. They yeah. received $200,000. Uh, a Red Orchid Theater, very small. They, they perform in a space about the size of our studio here. They received $200,000, and that will go a great long way. Sylvia. Yes. Tell me about your genealogy into the circus world. Did you come from several, several, several generations of circus grandparents, great-grandparents, Europeans, or was it... Are you just a like a first or second generation person? <laughs> this is a good story.
3: My mother was given... I'm a second generation. My mother was given to a circus family when she was a, a toddler. She was in Nuremberg, Germany during the war, and uh, she was given to a foster family as a baby to get her out of the city during the war, and then her mother came and retrieved her from this foster family that loved her and gave her, just kind of took her and said, I got a better idea. I'm going to give you to this circus family, and they will train you to do circus, and then they will pay me for your performing with them. So she started training when she was about five and... This is your mother? My mother, yeah. And and
1: what time period would this be?
3: Uh, She was born in 38 so she would be Performing in 43, uh, t- training in 43. So
0: your grandmother gave her to this circus family to raise and train her, yeah. and they paid her for this.
3: Yeah, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that is unclear. We, you know, we've been actually with uh, Heidi Stillman, who is the current artistic director at uh, Looking Glass. We've talked a lot about writing the story of her life, and we've been working on scripts and. Chris Matthews also, we talked to him. uh, Heidi and I have both talked to him about kind of coming up with this story. A lot of the stuff we can only guess because my grandmother is no longer living. And if she was, she probably wouldn't have remembered why. But my mom has a really interesting story because she was given to this circus duo and she was trained as a hand balancer and she worked with them and um, she didn't like it. So she kept running away, and she kept trying to get back to her foster family, not to her mother, because you know because the foster family was the her source of love and affection, and so she was always trying to find them again. And then she, they she, they would get found by the circus family and brought back to the circus. And when this family wanted to retire, they said her mother said, "Well, you know, let's find another troop for you." Now she was twelve. And she interviewed all these circus people, and she picked this troop of acrobats that did teeterboard, which is what I grew up doing. And then that, with that troop, she came to the United States. And that's, this is where they stayed when she was 12. And then they went to Cuba, and that's where she met my dad. And my dad joined their troop, and he was enamored with the circus. My mom was like, you know, this is just something I was made to do, and it's just what I do. But my dad was just very passionate about it and wanting us, his kids to be a part of it. So.
0: Was he a performer,
3: a circus performer? I think he was a bodybuilder. Because, again, it lost in translation. I think he said he was a gymnast. But I think what he meant was that he worked out in a gymnasium. <laughs>
0: I, I read a story, and you tell me this, if this is true, and I think it was an interview of yours that your father actually built a chair for you on a, on a pole so that you could learn how to teeterboard yourself up into a chair. Is this true, and does that chair still exist?
3: That's hilarious that you read that story, because I just talked about the story. It was in the Tribune. They interviewed me and said, if there was a fire in the gym, what would you take? And I said, I would take this chair. And I said, my dad built me a chair when I was 9 or 10, and I did a somersault, and I landed in the chair.
0: And the chair and was on a 9-foot pole or something? Yeah, it was,
3: originally it was like 10 foot, and a guy held it, and I somersaulted into, and somersaulted into it. It was my trick, like when I was 9. And then it was my trick for my whole career. And then when I moved to Chicago, I asked my brother, I was like, can I have the chair? And they were like, he was like, yeah, I don't want it. And then five years ago, I actually somersaulted into it as a curtain call, Uh, during lost and found which david was also in and chris matthews was in and it was just like the show was over and they were like wait a second wait a second we're going to make sylvia fly off the tita board and into the chair and that was five years ago and the chair lives backstage and
0: Fantastic. Yeah. I'd love to get a look at that someday. A- and that was what your specialty was in the circus. I assume that you landed in chairs higher than nine feet at times.
3: You know, I think if you go onto YouTube and search the Hernandez troupe, you will see me doing a somersault to that chair.
2: Tell, tell the story about breaking your back. Oh,
3: jeez. Oh. <laughs> okay. Sounds great. Uh, when I was 17, my troupe was asked to perform in the Circus World Championships in London, England we were really excited. We were the only American teeterboard troupe at the time. So we were the American teeterboard troop was kind of our claim to fame. So we went as representing America in this world championship. The first day, I think it was actually, it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a performance. It was a dress rehearsal. I had done a, one of the other tricks that was one of my ones I was famous for was a layout to three high. So my two brothers were stacked up and I would go straight uh, instead of a somersault I would lay out to the three high and it was kind of my claim to fame and I over rotated and I just totally missed and just landed on my back and I was like oh ah, that hurt so they took me to the emergency room they did some x-rays and they're like oh you're fine they said well you can perform tonight and take two days off or you can perform take tonight off and perform tomorrow and my 17 year old brain being the as smart as it was said well I think I'm going to be more sore tomorrow so I'll perform tonight and then I'll have two days off that was my that was my choice which I don't know why they would give a 17 year old that choice but they did and I performed that night and it got really weird looking back there and they were like maybe we should go have it checked again oh you fractured your vertebrae and there are two healed over vertebrae fractures back there, too. But so you probably aren't going to ever perform again. <laughs> but I performed last night. You were just really lucky. And that was kind of, hor- you know, scary. And so I came back to the United States and I was in a cast, a body cast. And I think the doctor said three months in the body cast. And when I got back, my 17-year-old genius brain was like, they said six weeks. So they took the cast off at six weeks. I think I'm okay. So, yeah.
0: And you continued to perform after that? I did. So they were yeah. wrong?
3: They were wrong. You
2: beat the odds. The fact that she'd broken her back two times before and hadn't known it, I think,
0: is also <laughs> worth
3: noting. <Yeah. laughs> Emphasizing Fairly high
0: tolerance for pain.
3: Yeah, that was like a lifetime ago. I don't really spend a whole lot of time talking about this. And this show is really brought back like, oh, I forgot that. It's, it's kind of cool. <laughs> Performing is kind of cool, and it's kind of fun. Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, as as you as you grew up, and you got to a certain age, and you were a, they decided that they needed another small person, right? So they they had your brother Tony. Yeah,
3: it was a great motivator for me. Like they had this little kid who was like started flying when he was two and he could do anything at any time. He's like chasing me out the door. I'm like, so I gotta do better because otherwise they're gonna replace me with this teeny tiny kid and so for a long time it just kept me motivated to Keep doing better and better. And if my back hurt, I was like, "No, it doesn't hurt." If my ankle hurt, I was like, oh I'm good." Well,
0: they <laughs> avoid they, avoid inertia, avoid yes. inertia.
2: And they would they would wheel his when it was time for their act, they would wheel his stroller up to the to the vom, and park it, and then they'd go do their act, and they would try to keep him. They would wave at him <laughs> from up in the air to. That's how we, we
3: babysat to, him, to, so he to could keep we could him see from him. crying and. And he just watched it from like a baby, baby. My son did the same thing. You know,
0: of the performing arts, I've read many things about the circus world, and very much like opera, there's a lot of superstitions among performers, a lot. Things like peacock feathers. Peacock feathers. Not wearing yellow, I've heard. Yep. If you leave your tent on the way to your act and you forgot something, you have to sit down and count to ten before you can return to your dressing room. I've heard that before. Odd, isn't it? Do either of you have
3: superstitions like this? I have a couple, the Peacock Feather, <laughs> which we got rid of.
0: Anywhere on stage? No Peacock nowhere, Feather? N-
3: nowhere. Uh, my dad had one which was weird, and it's really, it really stuck to me, and this was really weird, and I think this just might have been my dad. You can, If you have a string hanging off your costume, you can't cut it. You have to rip it which is its not always very easy, but i if I ever see anybody walking up to a costume with a scissor, I'm like, no, R- let, right. let me get it for you. Right. There's also the bird in the tent is always a bad one. It's scary to me. You
0: have no control over that. <laughs> if the bird gets inside, that's bad, right?
3: Yeah, they, that's what they said. And I used to you know, have a lot of rituals. Now we have Good Fast Safe Show, uh, which is a, a tradition that we brought uh, from Ringling Brothers. Um, it was a Romanian Troop that brought it and they we took it on and now i can't go on stage without doing a good fast safe show with every cast member and we're going to show you what it looks like good Good, fast fast, safe safe show show. rock Rock the the house.
0: house Wow. So we
3: do that before every show, and if nothing else, I w- will grab my son.
0: That was sort of a com- for our listeners. Yeah. That <laughs> was sort of a combination of fist bumping, patty high cake, f- and <laughs> high fiving and thumbs up. It was extremely complicated, but I can I can see why uh, maybe we that's could something provide we a
1: frame by frame like cartoon strip. You and I will do it later. We'll film her. it later for
0: Any fears? Any fears either on stage or off stage?
3: Playing the ukulele on stage was pretty fearful for me. I'm, it's just, I'm like terrified backstage every but time you, before I walk you, out there. But you,
0: you do it every night. David, you, are you, oh, are you have phobias I, or fears? I'm sort of terrified and
2: I'm, every time I go on stage. Not necessarily
0: of performance <laughs> yeah. uh, art either. Anything uh, at all. I, it takes Heights.
2: heights. I, I. It takes me... I think that's maybe why I tend to be a bottom guy. I have occasionally stood on people's shoulders. I sort of don't, can't believe that they will do that. There's, there's a fear that with this kind of work, it is, it's dangerous and hopefully it is not unsafe because you train to do it and you take every precaution, but it is, it is dangerous. It demands a high level of attention and focus at all times. And and that's part of why that good, fast, safe show, it's an opportunity to check in with every person in the cast and look into their eyes and say those words. I I often have been called to to spot, and there's a fear that what if I'm not there in time? What Mm -hmm. if in that moment as this person is uh, coming down, I'm... I'm stepping back instead of stepping in. And those are things that you don't always know whether you're going to do or not. And so there's a little bit of fear about that. I I remember we did, Sylvia and I did a show with the Midnight Circus and she was getting kicked to the chair and she, it missed. And she came down and I was, I turned out, I did take a step forward and was under her. And I know that I did, I didn't remember it. But then I looked at her costume. She had this white costume, and my face print uh, from my stage makeup <laughs> was perfectly <laughs> on her bottom.
0: L- which like, meant like the Shroud of Turin. Yes, exactly.
2: <laughs> and so I had, I had jumped up and put my face into her booty to catch her, and that actually made me feel really good. <laughs> not, not for the reasons you might think, but just it meant that I stepped forward and didn't step back.
0: I know you both have a show to do this afternoon, and uh, time is uh, short and time is running out. Um, something we like to do with our guests, and you may recall this, is a, a little um, card game called Chat Pack. These are some questions that maybe I wouldn't even think to ask you or things that you would never even dream of telling us. Would you guys be game for playing this uh, a little bit? It's, uh, it's just a pick a card, and then we'll answer the question.
2: Sounds good. Sure. Fantastic. Sure.
0: sounds fun. David, why don't you pick the first one? Who
2: is the best teacher, instructor you've ever had? The best boss. So I had this, um, but the one that comes to mind first off is my, my acting teacher for three years at Northwestern is a guy named David Downs. And he was, he was just so passionate about the theater. And that, that passion was very uh, catching, very... Uh, infecting. I, I actually now teach at Northwestern. I teach in the same room that he taught. And it's a very surreal. I'm teaching much of the same curic- curriculum um, with some of the addition of what we did at Looking Glass, which he was he was a big voice encouraging us to start our own company. And, um, and I just have this surreal experience of, of being in the lobby, getting ready to go into class, and I'll hear students say, oh, who are you studying with? I'm studying with with gail and and somebody will say oh i'm studying with david and i'll think oh is david downs back and then i have a moment of realizing they're talking about me um awesome. and that that, that feels awesome. really well cool.
0: hopefully you'll be the answer to that question that for would... someone well you, you want to play another one
3: i get to pick one
0: do you get to pick one
2: no i'll go again <laughs> i'll go again
0: no no oh.
2: What is the scariest, this is Sylvia picked it, but for some reason I'm reading it. What is the scariest encounter you've ever had with a wild animal?
0: Roscoe, you can play as well.
2: Thank you. You're talking about
1: Mentor, who we learned something from. I worked for a woman who I'm still scared. If I ran into her, I would start shaking. But one of the things that she taught me is to be resourceful and just figure it out and find the answer. And this sounds slightly self-aggrandizing, but I mentioned this before I did a documentary on the Kennedy assassination for radio once, many years ago. And she said, find Lee Harvey Oswald's widow and interview her. And I said, well, how do I do that? And she goes, figure it out. So I actually found an author who had written a book on the Kennedy assassination. And I said, how would I find Lee Harvey Oswald's widow? And he said, well, she's remarried. Her, her new last name is blah, 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 and she lives in XYZ, Texas. So I called 411, and I said, do you have a phone number for Marina XYZ in blah, 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 Texas? And they go, well, yes, here. And two seconds later, I was talking to Marina Oswald who was not so happy that I had tracked her down <laughs> and called her, but taught me the importance of being resourceful.
0: Hey, this this, this uh, boss of yours.
1: Yes, yeah, so wild animal story. I, I, don't, I don't have much of one. I'll answer both questions at once. I was in Mexico once. A woman had a stray dog who had befriended her. He was guarding her, but he was a, um, what do you call it, dog that's wild. A wild dog. Feral. A feral dog. And I went outside to turn off the water, and the dog bit me. And I came in the house, and I said, your wild dog has bit me. And she goes, well, thank God he didn't draw blood. And I said, well, in fact, he drew blood. But she'd had a couple of margaritas and couldn't be bothered. <laughs> so I never I never accepted medical attention, but I have nothing about bears or
0: well coyotes. Sylvia, you were around wild animals much of your career and adult lifetime. You must have had an encounter here or there. I
3: did. I had a couple. Gosh, you know, I have so many stories. There were... Lions that got loose when I was working on a circ- in a circus that was in a tent, and he got loose and he was just wandering around the travel trailers where everybody was living. And I was inside my travel trailer and the door was open, the screen door was closed, and he walked up to the door and just like looked in and, oh, there's a lion or I think it was a tiger, and he he just walked away and then they you know kind of surrounded him with some cage pieces and put him back in i also when i I was working in detroit and a monkey got loose and the monkeys are mean and they're big (laughs) and they're really scary and
0: like chimpanzees
3: chimpanzees they get really big and i my mother married a man whose children had all kinds of wild animals but this monkey got loose and Everybody was like, the monkey's loose, the mean one. So everybody went running and we ran into the bathroom and we were holding the door and we thought the monkey was beating on the door, but it turned out it was like one of my friends trying to get into the bathroom. They're like, the monkey's loose, the monkey's <laughs> loose, let me in, me in. I was like, oh God, I thought you were the monkey. So yeah, I also rode a stampeding elephant on the Ringling show. I'm sorry, I'm taking up all the wild animal stories.
1: Well, I, I'm gonna top I, I, that. I don't yeah. think we've ever had another guest <laughs> who's had who's had one as interesting as the your three so far. <laughs>
3: so I was sitting, I was riding an elephant, and I never rode an elephant until I got on the Ringling Show, and they said you have to ride with no hands. And I was wearing a big feather thing, and I, you know, I was like, I wanted to hold on, and they were like, No, you can't hold on. So I learned how to ride circus girl style with my hands up, and they switched the order of the elephants. So my elephant was always the lead elephant, but the Gunther Cable Williams daughter needed to ride the lead elephant. So they said, your ele- "We're going to move your elephant back." Came out onto the track, and I was riding with my hands up, and it said, "And it thought I'm supposed to be in the front." So it just starts hauling down the track. All the performers are jumping out of the way. And I'm like riding. And I don't look, not for a second, did I grab on. And everybody's like, good job, not holding on. Wow. Until my brother said, my older brother was like, jump to me. And I just jumped off the side. And the elephant like ran to the front of the line. Wow. And everybody was like, you didn't hold on. You didn't hold on. Why didn't you hold on? I don't know.
0: Well, I, I certainly can't top that. David, do you even want to try no, to top that? I can't top it, but
2: but uh, um, I, I we used to live in Albany Park. And- and uh, we had a little driveway, and Sylvia's brother called me once and said... "It's a
0: home of wild animals yeah, in Chicago, yes, Albany yeah, Park. Yeah, yes, That's where indeed. they all live.
2: <laughs> well, it, her brother Tony called me and said um, that her brother Randy was uh, wondering if he could use our driveway for, for uh, the weekend to um, park the rhino. Um, and I was like, what's a rhino? He's like, oh, a rhinoceros. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, what? <laughs> he said, well, they, that we can't get into the United Center yet, so we need a place to park the rhino and I know you have that driveway, so could we park the rhino in your driveway for the weekend? And that I, and is I thought, awesome. I, thought, I don't know if our neighborhood watch would, uh, how they would do with that.
3: I never heard that story. That's and the, awesome. Then
2: the only other, this is sort of, this is So this did, is did they park
0: it there for the weekend?
2: No, they fa- they found oh, a place, oh. which, um, damn. Yeah, yeah it would have been, yeah, we would have been the head of the neighborhood. Then the only other lame time was, I was walking out my backyard, and it was there was this thunderstorm, and I looked down, and, on my little cement patio is a possum that has, it looked like it had been struck by lightning and it, you know it was like completely dead and eviscerated. And it, it's, you know, And I was like, oh my goodness, I was taking the garbage out and I, and I come back and it was revealed in a flash of lightning. It was just this awful, like matted with blood. And, and I come back uh, from the garbage and I'm thinking, how am I gonna clean this poor uh, creature up? And I come back, and it's gone. And I realize it was playing possum. But really effectively with such, like, I don't know if it had, like, little blood packs and, and things that made me see it averserated, but it had apparently lied down in such a way that it made me look like it had, had been struck by it's like lightning cr- or eaten it's by. It's like a
0: crazy animal CSI yeah, type yeah, Yes, thing. it was. Wow. It was. Uh, we have time probably for one more. Roscoe, do you want to pull um, a oh, card? Oh, sure. Sure, go ahead.
1: What is the most dangerous thing you've ever done?
3: Hmm...
0: You don't consider teeterboarding five high to be dangerous, Sylvia?
3: No, not really. <laughs> the thing that I recall thinking, well, that was not the smartest, was I once stood in the globe of death, which is just the name. It's just in itself. Uh, it's the globe you stand in where the motorcycles zoom around. Big cage. Go, yeah, yeah a thing. And a friend of mine was pregnant and said would you be the assist the you know the girl in the globe of death and I was like yeah sure I just have to stand there sure and I so I, I stood in the globe of death and I was standing there it took me like three shows to realize that the motorcycle spinning around up over my head could fall oh, wait a second, I the motorcycles could fall I, I think that's me. where
0: the, the death part of globe of death comes yes. in, don't you? <laughs> Otherwise, they'd call it the globe of pure safety. <laughs> yeah.
3: You know, I thought, well, the motorcyclists are in danger, not me. And then I was like, oh, wait, <laughs> I'm standing here. The globe I, of what could go wrong. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> David, you strike me as someone who's attempted something dangerous. At Sylvia's wedding, which
2: was on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, I held her, her brother in a handstand, and I, and I, was, I was concerned that if he, he went over, that I would try to f- follow him and catch him.
3: Yeah, you know, you don't want to take circus people to the Grand Canyon because they're dumb. Like, everyone There's was good doing <laughs> good, good pictures photos. of handstands on the rim of the Grand Canyon, but hey. I was like, this is not what I had in mind. But uh, yeah, that was dangerous. That was some dangerous
0: stuff. Not not too smart a thing, but I bet the pictures of that are cool. Yeah,
3: yeah, they're cool.
1: You know, we're always looking for interesting titles for the show to attract the listener. So I think maybe "Don't Take Circus People to the Grand Canyon" would be a great title for this podcast. <laughs> a, a conversation <laughs>
0: with <laughs> Sylvia and David. Yeah. Subtitle. <laughs> hey, hey,
1: you know, can I ask? I know we're wrapping up. I want to ask something out of sequence because I often hear from. Um, people who listen to our show and and one of my our listeners wrote and said what i really appreciate is when you talk about the experience of going to the show and what the space is like and the audience is like and and the reaction and looking glass probably has the most unique location of any theater in the history of america (laughs) so for people who listen and don't live in chicago can you explain where looking glass theater is located and how you came to be there
2: uh, yeah, we're in the, um, uh, there's the the iconic water tower, and right across the street from that is the pumping station, which is a functioning uh, pumping station. It pumps 250 million gallons of water every day. It serves, I think, uh, almost 400,000 Chicagoans so there are pumps in there and they are there it's functional and, and it was then, built in a couple years right before the great fire mm-hmm. it's made out of this joliet limestone that um looks like a castle here on michigan avenue with lots of um high end retail and people everywhere and here is this castle and the room that we occupy when it was originally built contained the boilers these massive boilers that created the steam to drive those pumps. And as technology improved, those boilers got to move down into the basement. They they shrank and moved into the basement, leaving this kind of big open space. Mayor Daly and Lois Weisberg, who was the commissioner of cultural affairs, wanted very much to highlight the city's cultural aspects. And they had the idea of putting a theater in there. And it's not, it's not a massive room. It's about 40 feet by 60 feet, the kind of main auditorium. But it has high ceilings. And so it can accommodate when, it's, when there's a very small stage space. The most it can accommodate is uh, 250 patrons. At the time, uh, this is I think around 2000, 2001, we were 15 years old. We'd been a nomadic company. We'd been in 22 different venues across the city in those 50, first 15 years. And because of that, our aesthetic, we'd been able to go out and say, oh, we want a, a space that will fit the show. And so our architects t- you know, took that idea and worked to make it as flexible as possible for us so that we could create a space that, that best suited the show when we did Race, um, an adaptation of Studs Terkel's amazing book, we very much wanted the community who was viewing the story to be a part of it. And so it was set in the round. When we did 1984, Andy White wanted to have um, Big Brother pervasive at all times. And so we created an end stage, but the audience was set along the width of the stage. And so, and we had all these TV monitors with eyes. And so, no matter where you looked, you, in your panorama, there were these eyes of Big Brother watching. When we did Secret in the Wings, which it was set in this kind of corner basement, that the monster came out of this. I I don't know if you guys had this growing up, but we had this old basement that had the dirt floor and part of it, and, and it was always the scariest part. And so, Mary wanted that, and so we, put the stage into the corner. And when we did Looking Glass Alice, we wanted to be able to have this sense of mirror with the audience, and so we had an audience on two sides and, and so they could reflect each other. When you come to Looking Glass, you walk inside a, a castle and we move it around every time and it's, this kind of, it's kind of disorienting for the audience. And at first, there was a lot of pushback from the audience. There was uh, one subscriber who had come to see the first show, Race, and he and his wife sat in H-14, and then our next show was Secret in the Wings. And there was it was a completely different configuration. And he got his tickets, and it was not H-14. He went to the house manager, and he said, I'm a subscriber. Where is H-14 and H-15? Where, where are they? I demand to go to my seats. I'm a subscriber. I want the same seats. And Matthew Monti said... Um, uh, well, this is a different configuration, and and we don't actually have those seats in the theater right now. And he says, "Take me to those seats." So he ended up taking the subscriber upstairs into a kind of a place where we were storing the seats. But it still had H fourteen and fifteen on it. He said, "Here are your seats. I, I suppose I could switch them out if you like." And the guy said, "Oh, it's it's disorienting to go in there, and th- I think that that's." That's useful to, to change things up a little bit. Part of why I love circus is it's disorienting, right? It even just watching it um, mucks with your vestibular. You you get a little dizzy watching it. When you have that kinesthetic experience, you you and you see the people spinning, you yourself get a little dizzy. And I and I think that's why we ride roller coasters. I'm drawn to theater that that explores the rational versus irrational. And I think there's something about coming to looking glass that sets you a little bit off balance in a way that is healthy for all of
0: us. Uh, Marnie and Phil, a circus love letter, is playing at the Actors Gymnasium here in Evanston, Illinois, um, up until the 20th of March. Uh, If you have any interest in circus arts or something passionate or storytelling in an unusual and creative and just an immensely beautiful way. You owe it to yourself to get to Marnie and Phil, a circus love letter. For You it. can
3: check out our website at actorsgymnasium.org for more ticket information.
0: Actorsgymnasium.org for more ticket information. Sylvia Hernandez de David Catlin, thank you so very much for being part of Booth One.
2: Thanks for having us. Yeah, indeed.
0: And uh, Good, Safe, Fast Show. Close. Or Good, Fast, Safe Show. Yeah. Rock the house. (laughs) Well, that was great, Ross. That
1: was. They were interesting and talented people.
0: Fascinating stories i could sit here all day i know i wish them. i
1: had stories that that were that, were that interesting well, you we, we were riding on a train and suddenly a, a lion showed up in your car
0: <laughs> i guess we both should have run away with the circus when we were kids let's finish up as usual today with our kiss of death segment tommy kelly do you remember tommy kelly
1: Tommy Kelly sounds like uh, someone who was a Disney star in the 50s when I was a child.
0: Passed away at 90, Hollywood's Tom Sawyer. If you were a producer casting The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, that enduring study of small-town, middle-American life, where would you be least likely to look for your star? Maybe the Bronx? Well, yes, that's where in 1937... David O. Selznick, after a nationwide talent search that spanned nine months and thousands of boys, found the lead for his Hollywood film, released the next year in the person of 12-year-old Tommy Kelly. For his improbable turn as one of the nation's best-loved literary characters, Tommy became a newspaper sensation, a stickball-playing Cinderella plucked from his modest East Bronx surroundings in the thick of the Depression and thrust into the silver screen. (laughs) There's There's a lot of thrusting in that. In that paragraph, Mr. Kelly, who died on January 26th, was never especially keen on Hollywood, as he told the press his only real ambition was to be an outfielder for the New York Giants. He appeared in a string of other films through 1950, but spent his adult life happily as a teacher and an educational administrator. With his freckled face household hair and devil make hair grin, young Tommy certainly looked the part of Mark Twain's hero if he did not strictly sound it. Oh, he said gosh and golly, all right, as his many interviews attest. But he also confided to the press when asked about his young co-star Ann Gillis, who played Becky Thatcher, quote, you can't trust dames. Girls are squealers. Look what happened to Dillinger. <laughs> <laughs> in Hollywood, Tommy spent an hour a day with a speech coach to de-runionize his diction. The Pittsburgh Post Gazette's reviewer wrote, "The lad is a miracle of casting, superlatively real and unactorish. A youngster whose freckled, fresh face reflects all of Tom's lovable qualities, and who reminds us of what we once were ourselves." Thomas Francis Kelly was born in the Bronx. In 1925, 12 years later, Oscar Serlin, a Broadway producer whom Selznick had conscripted as a local talent scout, visited St. Raymond, the Bronx parochial school where Tommy attended sixth grade. Spotting Tommy, Mr. Serlin asked him if he could act. Not at all was precisely what Mr. Selznick, who sought a lack of affectation conspicuously absent from child stars of the day, wanted. We've talked about child stars of the day. This was in, of course, 1937, a little bit after, certainly after the silent era. Mm -hmm. But child actors tended to be a little actorish. Uh, With a group of other boys, Tommy was dispatched to the principal's study for a cold reading. A few days later, he was taken to Paramount's Studios on Long Island for a screen test. The film was sent to Hollywood, where Mr. Selznick, who was reported to have tested, get this, 25,000 boys for the role, he finally found his Tom. Before long, a telegram arrived at the Kellys' apartment on St. Raymond Avenue, summoning Tommy to Hollywood in a Pullman car and everything, he recalled. By all accounts, Tommy enjoyed his work in the film, which also starred Mae Robson, Walter Brennan, and Margaret Hamilton, but he was suitably unimpressed with the other backlot children. Quote, gee, they don't know anything about how to play stickball or anything, he told the New York Times in 1938. And at first they called me a sissy because I wore knee pants until I punched one kid in the face. Give me the Bronx any day. ha, <laughs> ha. For his work, Tommy was paid at least $100 a week. That's more than about $1,600 in today's money. His family relocated to California, and his father was placed on the studio payroll as an on-set security man. Mr. Kelly's other screen appearances include the title role in Peck's Bad Boy with the Circus, speaking of circus, in 1938, and small parts in Gone with the Wind in 1939, Irene in 1940, Life Begins with Andy Hardy in 1941, and The West Point Story in 1950. In a newspaper interview shortly after he was cast as Tom, young Mr. Kelly appraised his newfound career with all the pragmatism of his 12 years. I don't mind being an actor, he said. It's a lot easier than arithmetic. I think that's why you and I both chose to go to drama school. I think school. so. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy Kelly, 90, Hollywood's Tom Sawyer. If you've never seen the movie Tom Sawyer, I, I recommend it. It's it's really one of the finer films of that era.
1: I'd love to know what small role he played in Gone with the Wind. I don't know. That's you know, an interesting part. You know, a disgruntled part. Confederate soldier? Or...
0: Well, he would have only been like 14 or something. Were there young men in the oh, movie? Oh, sure, sure.
1: You know? I, I read this recently, something like 10% of the men who fought in the Civil War were uh, younger than 14.
0: Amazing. Well, it's been a great show. Thanks again to Sylvia Hernandez de Stasi and David Catlin for being our guests on Booth One this yep. afternoon. Yep.
1: And you'll do me a favor this afternoon. I brought a 30-yard-long piece of silk that I'd like to tie to one of your high-water pipes and begin, begin my efforts. Absolutely. I'll spot you. Thank you, spot me. (laughs) Light on his feet and thrilling to behold.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening. We uh, hope that you will tune in again to more of Booth One. This is Gary Zabinski, your host, saying thank you and take care.